Well, good morning, church family, and it is just a joy to be with you in worship this morning. And if you're here for the first time, uh, we just want to extend a very warm welcome to you here at Windsor Road Christian Church. And uh, my name is Randy, and I'm privileged to serve as the lead minister here at the church. And um, as the video discussed, there is a prayer that we want to uh, have in terms of this next season of uh, the year, of the church year. And it is the season of Lent. And Lent, you know what the word Lent means? Lent uh, is a word that literally means long, long. And it refers to the longer days that are coming as the spring approaches us. And so uh, Lent uh, has sometimes also been referred to as just spring. And so, uh, and at the conclusion of this season of longer days is Easter Sunday, April the 5th this year. And in the church uh, history, Lent has been a season of um, self-examination and preparation uh, for this glorious celebration of spring and, uh, and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um, we want to spend some time here between now and April 5th just doing some self-examination. And that leads us to our series this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to the Old Testament book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18. You'll find that on page 241 of your church Bibles. Uh, And and I'm going to read 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 16. Um, If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, if you'll please just take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from our church family. We'd be delighted uh, for you to have it and and have have your own copy of... uh, of God's word. Just follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, well, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is God's word. Well over 20 years ago, I asked one of the elders here at church to preach for me one Sunday. I wasn't out of town. I just um, needed a substitute that week. And I came to church that Sunday, uh, and I didn't have any responsibilities on the platform. I didn't lead worship um, or give announcements or anything like that. But I just simply came to enjoy God's word and God's people. And so I asked this elder to preach for me. And he and I are good friends and brother in Christ and um, appreciated him doing that. And I still remember the sermon that he preached. It was on Ephesians. It's over 20 years ago. And I still remember that sermon. And after he was finished, I still remember where I sat There, we were in the smaller worship center. And after service was over, I stood and I just was kind of like taking it all in. And I just remember thinking, you know, that that was really good. I mean, he did a great job. Um, It was a good message and um, folks were encouraged and just life is good. That was good. That was good. And, uh, and I was just getting ready to then turn away and visit with folks. And, and just as I was getting ready to turn away, I happened to glance back up, and I, I saw some folks coming up and encouraging uh, this elder. And um, you know, kind of shook his hand, hugged him, and you know, kind of got you know, a high-five thing. And, and, and uh, one or two of them came, and then three or four of them came, and then, like there was a line... sitting there watching that, and people were just really, really encouraged. I'm sitting there looking at that. It almost felt like the time it took for them to congratulate him exceeded the actual length of the sermon itself. (laughs) I sat back there, and I finally thought to myself, well, it wasn't that good. And I thought it was a little long, if you really want to know. And I had a kind of hard time tracking him. And, uh, and you know, he kind of had this thing going on with his hands that speakers often have. We call it the T-Rex syndrome because you don't know what to do with your hands. So you just kind of make it look like this. And, and then after that, he kind of had the, you know, the, 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 the wringing of the hands thing going on. And, and it was really a distraction. And, uh, and did I mention it was just a little long? And I just, you know, it wasn't that good. It wasn't that good. And that Sunday, I learned something about myself, okay? I learned something about myself. I learned that I am vulnerable to the sin of envy. Envy. One of the seven deadly sins. And and this is our series in Lent. 
And as you came in here, you could see these deadly sins, which I've titled this series, the title based on a book by Rebecca DeYoung, uh, Glittering Vices. Glittering Vices. Each of you should have a card here on your seat. That's what really they are. They're these attractive, gorgeous, glittering, lethal vices. And, and uh, someone asked, well, where, who, who thought these seven sins up anyway? What, what is that all about? And I'll tell you what that's all about. Um, quick church history lesson. In the fourth century, a church leader by the name of Evagrius, Evagrius, E-V-A-G-R-I-U-S, Evagrius, brilliant guy, well-read, great speaker, good writer, um, lived in the city, and went out into the desert wilderness. He was uh, what church historians would call one of the desert fathers. And these desert fathers kind of removed themselves from the city and started these uh, monastic desert spiritual communities. And he wanted to try to figure out you know, what is it that really causes people to be stunted in their spiritual life? And he found out that there were seven or eight sins from which all of the other sins came from. And actually, Evagrius had eight. And one of his students, a guy by the name of Cassian, uh, who in the early 5th century... Uh, kind of edited it down to seven. And that's kind of the seven that we have now. Uh, And Gregory the Great sort of refined that. And there we have it. Seven. Seven deadly sins that you can see. You know, there's uh, envy and pride and sloth and greed and anger and lust. What's that other one there? I've forgotten. What's that say? Gluttony. Gluttony. So there's seven there. Uh, the one that got folded into sloth was this eighth one called despair. And so we'll talk a little bit about that when we get to sloth. Uh, but I don't want to do that now. I'm too tired to talk about that. Sloth. <laughs> anyway. All right. Let's talk about envy before I nod off. That'd be bad, wouldn't it? Anyway, envy, envy. See, here's the deal with these desert fathers. They, they, well, you know, why even come up with these seven deadly sins? They, they, they were thinking, look, if you go into the world not knowing where you're vulnerable, that's naive. So you, you need to know yourself. And you need to know your weaknesses. And you need to know where you, uh, you know, uh, have holes in your armor, where you are vulnerable. And all of us are vulnerable in some areas, you see. And, and here's what's interesting. These seven deadly sins were not discovered when Evagrius went to Jersey City or Las Vegas or Bourbon Street. He discovered these out in the desert wilderness of these spiritual Christian communities. 
You understand what I'm saying? I discovered that I had a vulnerability to envy in church. In church. And so it's not enough for us to simply separate ourselves from the world. No. Because you see, what they learned was they might be able to separate themselves from the world, but they bring the world with them in their heart. The greatest enemy in my spiritual life is my heart. Is my heart. And so I need help. I found out my struggle with envy (laughs) in church. So I want us to start with this. And our scripture this morning in 1 Samuel 18 speaks of this struggle, this vulnerability with envy. And as we look at these verses, I want to answer three questions. What is envy? How do we define envy? We're going to do that. And then, well, uh, secondly, I want to find out what is it that makes envy so damaging to our spiritual lives? And then, thirdly, what will destroy envy? What will kill envy? What removes envy as a vulnerability, okay? So what, so what, now what? That's where we're going. Well, the first question is, what is envy? And we see that in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18 gives us a snapshot of this glittering vice involving three individuals. Saul, who is the first king of Israel. David, who will be the second king of Israel. And then Jonathan, who is Saul's son, who uh, did not become king of Israel. And envy plays out in their lives. The chapter opens up with David having bested the giant Goliath. His defeat against the Philistine was a stunning upset because, you know, we read about David and Goliath, and we know what happened at the end. But I'm telling you, no one expected David to defeat Goliath. Nobody saw it coming. It was, well, I would say it was as unexpected as an interception on the one-yard line. David's star is on the rise. King Saul is impressed, at least at first. So he wants to keep David in the palace. And, and, uh, uh, and verse 5 says that David was successful with whatever he did, wherever he went. And everybody loved David. Everybody did. The people loved David. Saul's servants. Saul's own son, Jonathan, loved David. And then something happened that changed the relationship between David and Saul forever. David was returning home with Saul and the troops, and there was this ticker tape parade, this processional of singers and dancers, and and these singers started chanting these lyrics. They started singing. And some of you who have read this passage, you're familiar with it. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And over and over, they kept singing this happy, celebratory song, and it was kind of antiphonal, you know? You know what I mean. I-L-L. Oh, really? Come on. (laughs) What do we we have, Purdue fans here, or what? What's the deal? Come on, what? I-L-L. I and I'm that's what was going on here. 
And, and, and the, the point of the song was that I just offended a Purdue Boilermaker. I know. I just, Mike Simmons is from Purdue. I don't mind offending him. We pay him here. So that's the deal. Saul the king was, was there and leading this. And, and I'm, you know, his name is mentioned first. He's in charge. David is his subordinate. So anything David does reflects upon Saul the king. So it's, you know, it was never intended to be political. It was never intended to communicate that, that, that somehow uh, the nation is falling in love with David more than Saul. No, no, no. But that's not how Saul heard it. Saul took this in the worst possible way. And he panicked. And he began to question David's loyalty. And he began to question David's integrity. And he began to question David's allegiance. He began to question David's motives. Verse 8. Well, if this is what they're saying, what more can he have but the kingdom? And then verse 9. It's the verse that really identifies and defines what envy is. You see it? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Envy has to do with our eyes. What is envy? Envy is feeling bitter because others have it better. There it is. Envy is feeling bitter because others have it better. Envy is my bitterness at your betterness. Envy resents how good God has been to you by ignoring how good God has been to me. Someone uh, wrote these words. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. Psalm 73.2 says... For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy has to do with your eyes. Saul eyed David. You know, when we suffer, we ask questions like, Lord, why me? Why me? Why, why did this happen to happen to me? We ask those questions when we suffer. And when we envy, we ask Lord, why them? Why them? Why were they born so beautiful or talented or wealthy or intelligent? Paul wrote in Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy weeps with those who rejoice and rejoices when others weep. Envy. Envy is resentful hatred at the happiness of others. And yet, it starts with the eyes. It starts with the eyes. Saul eyed David. Envy, I've been using words like resentment and hatred and very emotional words, but this you must know. Before envy is an emotion, it is first an interpretation. Because you and I are interpreters. We, we, we don't just take in what happens to us. We interpret 
what happens to us. And envy interprets before it emotes. It is a particular interpretation of what is. Envy is a pair of lenses through which you see and take in life. It's a way of looking some, envy is a way of looking at something that leads to a particular emotion or a particular action. And know this, envy is not just a particular interpretation, envy is a distorted interpretation. Envy is a distorted set of lenses. Church, look up here. Envy distorts reality. Envy distorts reality. Envy has a way of looking at life through these rippled lenses that will always distort whatever it is you see. And so envy cherry picks the facts and spins the facts and reshapes those facts, all the while presenting it as a valid interpretation of life. And that's why envy can make you crazy. It can make you like the crazy guy on the street. You've seen the crazy guys on the street. Why is he crazy? He's crazy because he doesn't know he's crazy. He looks and he speaks and he acts crazy because he thinks that that's normal. That's real. No, that's envy. Envy. I see something that you have. And I want it. See, see, jealousy has something. Jealousy is about what I have. And I'm going to protect that. And that can be noble. <laughs> your marriage, your children. I'm, I'm jealous. I'm zealous for that. Jealousy is what I feel with what I have. But envy has to deal with what you have. And I want that. And you don't deserve that. But I do. And because you don't deserve that, why that makes this thing unjust. And that makes you unworthy. And as long as you have it and I don't, then this world is not right. And I intend to set things right. And you just begin obsessing about this. And envy would insist that you would make a better God than the God of this universe. Notice what we see in these verses about envy. Like this. Verse 6. Envy usually follows success. Someone else's success. David's success. David's ten thousands. Envy sees the success of another and grimaces like vinegar in coffee. That makes envy misery at someone else's joy. Envy usually follows success. And envy, envy lives in your neighborhood. Envy lives at home. Envy hits close to home. David was in Saul's house under Saul's roof. Saul knew him. We typically don't envy people we don't know. Right? I don't, I don't envy Paul Cho. Anybody know who Paul Cho is? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't envy him then, do you? Yeah. We're a smart church. Okay? Paul Cho pastors the Yoido Full Gospel Church in Seoul, Korea. It's the world's largest church. 
480,000 attenders. I don't know how they do the count. But that's, that's the number. I don't envy him. You know, I don't. I don't know him. You know who I envy? I envy, I envy the guy across town. Not church. You know? or, or I envy one of my college classmates. Because I know their personalities. I know their gifts. I know what they can and can't do. That's who I'm tempted to envy. I don't envy Bill Gates. I don't. But I do get bent out of shape when I find out that someone else in town who's less qualified gets $10,000 a year more for doing what I do. Novelist Joseph Heller put it this way. There is no disappointment so numbing as someone no better than you achieving more. That's envy. I'll tell you something else about envy. Envy doesn't want another one. Envy doesn't want another one. Envy wants that one. The one that you have. We've seen this with kids. They go into a playroom, and one child is just content, deliriously content with the blue ball. Child number two comes in, and there's 30 balls in the room. Guess which one child number two wants? The blue ball that child number one has, you see? And then the child number one puts down the blue ball and goes to get the red ball. Guess what child number two does? Goes to the red ball. So they don't want the ball, they want the experience that child number one has. Hey, we're, we're, we're those children. We're those children, you know. I don't just want one, I want that one. I want to take away not only the possession, but your experience of the possession. And if I can't have it, then I'm going to make you miserable in your having it. I I, I can't have a swimming pool, Lord? All right, well, he has a swimming pool, so God, don't just drain his swimming pool, fill his basement. (laughs) It's evil, isn't it? Very. And it's irrational. We, we just become irrational when envy enters our lives and we start obsessing that our puny little kingdom of one is under attack and what follows is a progression of paranoia and suspicion because once you begin to invoke the powers that be to do their worst, it's not long before you start helping them out. And that's why, here's something else about envy, envy never stops at envy. It always leads to to more dastardly things. True story. A high school yearbook editor in Indiana takes vengeance on her rivals by defacing their yearbook photos after the yearbook has been proofread. And just before it goes to the printer, this envious editor blacks out the teeth and pencils in underarm hair on the photos of girls who have dated her boyfriends. <laughs> Subordinates of a Chicago publishing vice president ruin his reputation by lying about his work. They spread false tales of his poor judgment and dithering, and the vice president doesn't know he's been stabbed in the back until the day his superiors ask him to resign. True story. 
the mother of an aspiring 13-year-old cheerleader in Texas, contracts with a hitman to kill the mother of a rival cheerleader, and the idea is to upset the bereaved daughter and thus disrupt her preparation for cheerleading tryouts. After a nasty, bitter divorce, you see your spouse excel at work, in life, in relationships, and their success enrages you and devours you, and you respond by poisoning the children's minds about them. All true stories. Envy never stops at envy. Saul eyed David. He eyed David. And there's this this progression of devious behavior. He brings David into the palace, but then tries to kill him. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. What's that about? Here's what that's about. Saul rejected the Holy Spirit of God. And so God says, okay, if you don't want my Holy Spirit, you'll get a harmful spirit. And there's this intentional contrast that's being displayed between Saul and David. Whereas David is anointed by the Holy Spirit, Saul is anointed by a harmful spirit. Whereas David has a musical instrument in his hand, Saul has a spear in his hand. Whereas David kills Goliath with one shot, Saul misses David with two tries. Everything Saul does helps David even more. Saul brings David into his house. David succeeds. Saul sends David away. David succeeds. Saul offers David a a malicious reward. He, He says, okay, I want you to marry my daughter. Just go win battles, thinking that, well, he'll be killed in battle. And David says, you know, who am I to marry Uh, the king's daughter. Who am I to be son-in-law to the king? And then then Saul changes his mind about his daughter Merib and then finds out that his other daughter Michael loves David. So, I mean, he uses her love with ill intent against him. Okay, David, you can marry her. You can earn the right to be my son-in-law. You know, kill 100 Philistines first. He'll never kill 100 Philistines. They're going to kill him. David kills 200 Philistines. (laughs) Why? Because God's with him. That's why. And, and, and everybody sees this, and everybody loves this, except Saul. Except Saul. And finally, the chapter concludes in verse 30. Then the princess of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. I mean, and finally, finally, you know, this, this envy that was entrapped in Saul's soul that was corrupting his soul, that was, he was secretly nurturing this thing, finally gets out in the open where in 1 Samuel 19.1, Saul just blatantly says to his son, Jonathan, I want him dead. I want him dead. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy makes the bones rot. Anybody here have rotting bones? Anybody here tempted to compare or criticize or complain? Anybody, any, any, 
any secret resentments being nurtured in your heart for those whom you see and feel are better, richer, stronger, more talented, and that results in an ungrateful, ulcerous soul? Envy is an ulcer to your soul. What makes this so damaging? That's question number two. What makes, it, what makes it so damaging? What makes, what makes being bitter at someone else's better so damaging? What makes it? Because you see, it's, it's an eye disorder. Saul eyed David. It's, um, envy is, is the glaucoma of spiritual sight. And, and you begin to go blind, you can't even see it. You never see it coming. It's so hard to see envy in the mirror. We can look at these other uh, deadly sins, and you know, we might confess to pride or lust or gluttony or sloth. We may come clean about those vices, but envy? Envy? We're blind to envy, which makes it so ironic. Saul eyed David, and yet in eyeing David, he grew blind. Envy is a sin of the eyes. In fact, artists in history have portrayed envy as blindness. Check out this picture. This was in, painted in the year 1306, and it's a portrait of envy. Notice the, uh, go to the next uh, slide, uh, 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 the, the clutching of the bag of, of you know, this envious desire and resentment. Notice uh, on the upper right-hand side of the screen, the fires of envy are consuming. And then in the center, this serpent that comes out of the mouth, blinding the eyes of envy. Blinding the eyes. And why? Because envy is so ugly we do such a good job at camouflaging it from other people, we often camouflage it from ourselves. And because Saul eyed David, he became blind to every blessing that God had given him. Because Saul eyed David, he was blind to the truth that all, of he had, all that he had came from God. Because Saul eyed David... He refused to see God's bigger picture of using Israel to bless the nations through David and even through himself. Because Saul eyed David, Saul saw his crown as his crown to hoard instead of a stewardship to manage. And because Saul eyed David, his kingdom of Thousands and tens of thousands shriveled to a puny little kingdom of one. I mean, think about it here. Look at this. In the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 18, there's community, there's celebration, there's people, there's a parade. And because Saul eyed David at the end of the chapter, by the time you get to the very end of chapter, there's just one. And that's Saul. Solitary confinement. He's all by himself. And everybody loves David. Everybody. Jonathan loves David. Saul's servant loves David. The troops love David. The people of God love David. Everybody but Saul. He's locked himself in this asylum of isolation, lost in his fictitious fantasies of envy. And he cannot get out. He cannot get out. Is there a way out? 
does this message get any better, Pastor? Yes, starting now. That was the bad news. Here's the good news, all right? Here's the good news. The good news is, is that there is a way out. Love is what destroys envy. Gospel love. Gospel love kills envy. And it's right here in these verses. You know who should have envied David? Jonathan. Jonathan's the crown prince. But Jonathan loved David. And Jonathan could see the future. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. But Jonathan did something that foreshadowed the future. We, we see it here in, in uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 4. It says, it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan was the crown prince. But he gives David his royal attire. He just gives it to him, including his sword. Including his sword. Uh, uh, listen, please, write down 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 22. 1 Samuel 13, 22. And in 1 Samuel 13, verse 22, you will read that at that time in Israel, there were only two swords. Only two swords. Because Samuel tells us, that there, there were no blacksmiths among Israel. And so they only had two swords. They fought with spears and arrows and two swords. And Jonathan gives David his sword. Because Jonathan was saying, I just want what God wants. His eyes were not on David. His eyes were on God. And so Jonathan saw, and then he interpreted, and then he felt, and then he acted. Jonathan saw that every good and perfect gift came from the Father of lights. Jonathan realized that the crown did not belong to him, and it didn't even belong to David, and it didn't even belong to Saul. The crown belonged to God, who gave as he chose to give, and he doesn't have to explain himself. He does not owe me an explanation. And so Jonathan's not losing anything by not being king. He's gaining rather the joy of a life lived in the will of God. He's gaining the joy. The joy of watching his brother and friend whom he loves and who's knitted to his soul. He loves to see his brother succeed. Who thinks like that? Love does. Love does. And that is how we destroy evil. Gospel love destroys evil envy. The artists of old knew this because you see, I showed you the envy picture. See, there's a counterpart, seven vices, seven virtues. And here's the virtue on the left, this, this uh, dear saintly woman with a bounty in her right hand and with her left reaching up to the Lord who is giving her a heart. The eyes of envy are cured, not with new eyes, but with a new heart. A new heart. 
For love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan plays peacemaker and mediator. He loves Saul. Saul is his father. He loves his father. And Saul loves David, his friend, his brother. And eventually, Jonathan dies. And it is Jonathan here who helps us look ahead to Jesus Christ, who is the true Jonathan. The true Jonathan who destroys envy by freely surrendering his regal splendor. Jesus takes off the wardrobe of his glory. He surrenders the king's sword. He picks up the towel and the basin to serve Jesus, our peacemaker. Jesus, our mediator, who gives up his right at the cost of his life. And yes, yes, we can see Jesus in David's life as well. For Jesus himself was a victim of envy. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, it says, For Pontius Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. Even a pagan Roman can smell envy. And the asylum of envy can only be opened from the outside. Because we're so blind, we can't see the door. And so Jesus comes in from the outside He removes his heavenly royal splendor, puts on the garment of servanthood, and he came to rescue Saul. He came to rescue Saul. He came to rescue the chief priests, trapped in envy, blinded by envy, who can't see their way out. Saul needs a new heart to heal his blind eyes. So Christ came, and he entered Saul's world of envy by taking the place that no one would envy, because on the cross, Jesus killed envy in his own body when Christ was beaten. He was blinded from his wounds. And all of us were blinded because the day Christ died, darkness had covered the land. Envy died on the cross with Jesus. Envy and Jesus died. And one of them got up on that third day. God vindicated his son by raising him from the dead and sending his Holy Spirit of love, flooding us with love. So the ultimate answer to envy is not an asylum of secluded inmates lost in their private fantasies the ultimate answer is a life-changing community of authentic believers passionately pursuing Christ. Brothers and sisters in the family of God who feel so loved by a generous heavenly Father that they cannot help but love and cheer one another on. And I don't need to spend my time 
wasting my time asking why God hasn't given me a possession because God has given me the greatest possession, Himself and His Spirit. And when we gather, that's the, the kingdom of God is a party where Saul and Jonathan and David can celebrate together, where the elder brother of the prodigal son joins the celebration. And so here today is our choice. Now here's a choice. I can either choose to stay in my self-imposed asylum or I can join the celebration. There it is. The choice is between envying God's goodness to others or worshiping in awe of all of the goodness and grace he's given me. Christ has enabled that to happen through his Holy Spirit. And so, and so, church, Romans chapter 13, verse 13, let us walk honestly, not in strife and envying. So your cards this morning. Each week, we're going to be giving you one of these cards. And this week, there are scripture verses that I would ask that you uh, use for your prayer time. And let's just start with what's said tomorrow. And why wait till tomorrow? Confess to God the areas in your life where you struggle with envy towards other people because of their belongings, positions, or relationships. And then there's scripture reading for Tuesday and Wednesday and so forth. What, what would it be like if all of us could, e either individual or with our spouses or with a brother and sister in Christ uh, or our small groups, just do some business with God each day about this. And then we come here together ready for the celebration. On Sunday, the celebration of what our king has done for us. A celebration that we will now enjoy in Holy Communion. Shall we pray?